We're back. Uh, we were gone, but now we have returned. Charlie bit my finger. Dark side in the people's court. Big Sur. Trend micro. Russian keyboards to fool Russians. And Fleming Shi from Barracuda on this edition of Security Weekly News. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. We interrupt our program to bring you this important it's the show that keeps you up to date on the latest security news twice a week. Your trusted source for accurate security information and expert analysis. It's time for Security Weekly News. As technology continues to evolve and expand, so have the attackers that put our critical systems in jeopardy. Core Impact from Core Security is a penetration testing tool that safely finds vulnerabilities using the same techniques of adversaries. With certified exploits and wizards that guide you through critical pen tests while maximizing the time of advanced testers by automating their routines. With Core Security, you can safeguard your infrastructure by limiting access, detecting threats, testing for security weaknesses, and efficiently monitoring data. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash core security it is the week of 23 may and we have returned from rsa i hope you caught all those shows last week including great uh, paul security weekly on thursday night uh let's get to the news uh well since we've been gone well you know we basically just sit around and drink tequila and play acoustic guitar or or, or maybe that was jimmy buffett I, I i get me and jimmy buffett confused all the time but but either way we we are back uh, in this first story, apparently, Darkside, uh, the ransomware as a service group that conducted or at least hosted the Colonial Pipeline attack, which was all the rage when we left. So when we went, when RSA started, it was like all Colonial this, Colonial that, Colonial Pipeline, Darkside, Darkside, Darkside. It was all we got. But when we come back, it's still going on. So the attack was so high profile. So this attack on Colonial Pipeline was so high profile that they became a major focus of just about everybody from fighting Joe Biden, the president of the United States, to, well, me. So everybody. I mean, that's that's I'll just leave it at that. You can fill in all the other names uh, between Joe Biden and me. You know, so that's sort of the top to bottom and everybody else. But apparently this resulted in their operations getting interrupted on Friday, which led for calls for Darkseid to speak according to their charter, honestly and openly about problems as they had promised that they would and they, and they, and they had posts, so they did. They posted a lot of their servers that they use for blogging, payment processing, denial of service, ransomwareing, all these little you know, functions of this business had been seized. Now, they didn't say where the servers were or who seized them, but they were apparently seized. So as you might guess, having all your servers grabbed puts a real crimp in your ransomwareing. I mean, it's really tough to ransomware people when you can't send, the, you know, process the payments, send out the nasty letters and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so as a result, they were having a tough time collecting ransoms and they were not delivering on promises they had made to affiliates to, I guess, deliver ransoms. So they turned the story that I had was they turned the dispute over to a kind of, as they called it, people's court, which was made up of admins of the dark web criminal forum. So I guess this is like the meeting of the five families in Brooklyn or something, you know, like the mafia bought Don's all get together and they decide if Michael can whack Fredo and all this kind of stuff, I guess. I, I don't know that much about the mafia, but anyway, complaints are being submitted to the forum. So uh, for Darkside, who's breaking the terms of its affiliate program, what, 
wait, they have an affiliate program? I mean, so it's like we're an evil corporate, we're an evil ransomware company. We have an affiliate program. It's like, it's like the next thing that's coming from there will be like the dark side company picnic, the group photo, the egg race, all that good stuff. It'll be like, hi, I'm Dr. Doug White. You may know me from such hit web shows as Paul's Security Weekly. What's that in my pocket? Or I wouldn't eat that if I were you. Or here, hold this, all, all my other shows. But in real life, I will be your host for your first day here at Darkside, where we really care about our employees. Anyway, the hacker's court uses fancy legal terms like plaintiff and defendants, according to Huntress researcher John Hammond. I don't know what happens if you cross the court orders or the court orders you to do something or who's actually in charge or maybe it's like the mafia and they just take you down to Jersey and they dump you in the Pine Barrens. I, I, I mean, and again, all I know about the mafia in Jersey is what I learned watching The Sopranos, so it's probably not very accurate. But anyway, it's an interesting story that you probably should read. Uh, as you can see, I, I was quite amused by it. Uh, so Apple patched Mac OS to remove a vulnerability that was being exploited by XCS set spyware. I actually managed to say that. Um, there was a hole that allowed XCS set, uh, and I, I don't know how to say it. Maybe I'm saying it wrong, and it's something really cool sounding, but I'm just saying XCS set. So if it's something else, I'll let you worry about it. But this uh, malware uh, was capturing screenshots of the system that were running the 11.4 version of the OS called Big Sur. And so XCS set was discovered by Trend Micro last August, and they at that time they saw it using two zero-day flaws to operate. But a new flaw, uh, or one of those flaws was the data vault, which allowed a bypass of the system integrity protection component of the operating system. And another one was in Safari uh, WebKit development that allowed cross-site scripting. So, you know, put those two things together and it's kind of bad. Uh, the third zero-day flaw was found by Jamf. And they said it was an Apple script module was being used to capture the actual screenshot from a list of installed apps. So certain things that are running, they could capture the screen while it was going. So, you know, pat, pat your Mac. Uh, they did release a patch for this. So, you know, take care of that. RSA was last week, and one story that came out of it that I liked, uh, was interested in, was that Cobalt Strike has replaced Metasploit as the preferred hacking platform in uh, this uh, study. Cobalt Strike was originally built by Raphael Mudge back in 2012, uh, but it remained a kind of second or maybe even third fiddle to Metasploit and others for a long, for a long time. Even though it was out there, it, it, was, it was, you know, a lot of people liked it, but it was not the thing. Uh, Help Systems bought uh, bought uh, Cobalt Strike last year. Sophos, who did the report, released data about attacker behavior for the year and showed that Cobalt Strike is one of the top five attack tools currently being used and is a key component for building PowerShell commands to obfuscate your activity. Uh, if you haven't used Cobalt Strike, you probably should check it out. Uh, they did find that 60% of PowerShell exploits did use Cobalt Strike and components of Cobalt Strike. And they also indicated that it's commonly paired with PS uh, exact uh, in, in, uh, in, other, in, a, in a third of other attacks. All this was found in the Active Adversary Playbook for 2021 from Sophos. Uh, like Metasploit, the product is intended for red teaming, but it's often used for, you know, other things. So it, it, if you look at uh, malware frameworks, you'll often see Cobalt Strike being included as a component of those malware frameworks to allow other things. Cisco's Talos reported vulnerabilities in Trend Micro's home network security devices, which could be used to escalate privilege or just to create an arbitrary login. The devices contained three key vulnerabilities, which consisted of two stack buffer overflows and, wait for it, 
a hard-coded password. You'd think in this day and age that wouldn't be happening, but it's still happening. Uh, the two main vulnerabilities are in the IO control uh, module, and they can be exploited uh, with uh, with specially crafted IO control requests that uh, that requ it does require you to be able to execute code on the device. So it's probably not a massive threat, but it is a threat. Uh, and then, of course, there's a hard-coded password. So, you know, hard-coded. Uh, I can't say that enough. Uh, Trend Micro said it had no knowledge of any actual attacks due to the vulnerability, but has released firmware updates, which should be automatically put in place through their firmware update process on the device. But, you know, you might want to check that and see. In the bigger world of maybe try this at home, uh, I, I, this, this doesn't sound too dangerous, and, and it was actually sounded pretty interesting. Uh, so Krebs was talking about this, and they found a Twitter discussion last week, which was basically about ransomware kill switches. Um, there obviously have been famous versions of this in history, like, say, WannaCry. So WannaCry, if you don't recall, was a few years ago, had a kill switch. It, it had to connect to a domain that if the domain was out there, or if it could, I don't remember if it was, it had to be there, if it couldn't connect, I think it was it had to find the domain, it wouldn't run. And so the idea, of course, was that probably the people that developed WannaCry didn't want to, you know, allow it to spread just everywhere so they could stop it or start it whenever they wanted to. But this, this idea was much, much simpler than that. Uh, the discussion that was going on found that a great deal of ransomware would not, not, install on a Windows machine that, w that had certain virtual keyboards installed. Hmm. If you, and if you don't know what that means, a, a virtual keyboard is this almost useless tool. It's very difficult to use virtual keyboards because you have to click the keys with a mouse and, and so forth. But it basically allows you to type alternate alphabets. So if you are, are working in Greek or Russian or some language that uses a different alphabet, you can install a virtual keyboard. Now, it is kind of useful if you just need to do a few small things, like, say, Cyrillic on your computer, and you want to do it really, really slowly with the mouse, then, then this is the way to go. So this article is about how groups like Darkseid don't want to be charged in their home countries, which in the case of Russia requires a complaint to be filed from within Russia. So you can do whatever you want as long as you don't do it in Russia. And so Cyber Reason had checked this out. So they tested this. And what they did um, was they checked this against a hard-coded do not install list for Darkseid. And they found Russian and, and other Cyrillic languages were excluded along with Arabic and a whole bunch of others. Now, this is not to say this is going to solve a ransomware problem because once the ransomware people figure that people are installing virtual keyboards to prevent ransomware, guess what? They will update their ransomware and their automatic ransomware botnet upgrade engine will simply update all the, all the engines and it will go away. And, you know, and there was a quote from our friend Allison Nixon on, on just that topic in the article, so you can check that out. Now, I have had a Russian keyboard on my machine for years because I was going to Russia and I actually needed a Cyrillic keyboard so I could type some stuff in to this application I had to fill out, uh, and I've never been ransomware. Now, this, of course, is called a fallacy of causality by academics, just saying. But, you know, anyway, it, it, it all sounded kind of funny. It was a really good article. It was quite interesting. I thought it was going to be kind of a joke story, but, you know, I, it, it actually came out. When we return, Fleming Shi from Barracuda is going to join us to talk about supply chain and other matters. So stick around. 
Cyber criminals are working overtime. They're leveraging activity around the COVID vaccine to disguise phishing attacks, hoping to steal money or personal information from your employees or customers. The Barracuda Email Threat Scanner is a free tool you can use right now to help protect your business and ultimately your reputation. The Barracuda Email Threat Scanner analyzes your Office 365 accounts and identifies malicious emails that slipped past your gateway and into inboxes. Find the cybersecurity threats hiding in your Office 365 email. Use the Barracuda Email Threat Scanner for free right now at securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. Welcome back. Fleming She is the CTO of Barracuda Networks. That's, uh, that, all, that all sounds cool. And we, we should have had the like Barracuda song from Heart, you know, to play in the background when, when uh, Fleming was yeah. coming on. And he's going to join me today as a guest. And we're going to talk about uh, supply chain and threats and all kinds of stuff. Hi, Fleming. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's really good to have you here. You've, you've been a guest on a lot of different shows, and uh, so it was really nice to have you on the news. Uh, one of the things I was going to talk to you about uh, was, so when I first started programming, so you, you're going to love this, when I first started programming in 1977, um, you could sabotage code, and, and it wasn't very many people's code, but you could sabotage code just by punching a hole in the paper tape with a pencil. I mean, <laughs> you know, right. that was... That was like a hack in 1977. Yeah. And I know you're not that old, uh, but yeah. what was the first sort of hack or sort of thing that you saw or you thought of when you first got started in this business? That's interesting. Actually, I do hear about the, you know, the punch cards and, you know, the core dumps were actually physical, like you can actually spread, you know, you know uh, uh, spray a whole bunch of your cards on the floor and it becomes a nightmare, <laughs> uh, right? Um, uh, well, I, I think the ways I look at it, um, I would just say use my experience with my uh, initial uh, set of tools that I, that I used for computing. Um, I started with uh, VIC-20 uh, from my friend, borrowed it from my friend, connects to the TV. There's nothing really you can hack about it. You know, you can write a program to actually uh, do fun stuff like print a, a, a picture of a, a Christmas tree, for example, right? So if you, I think if, uh, as time go along, then you can start seeing uh, software being, you know, sold as well as uh, being uh, used in various different uh, business functions uh, that is becoming more critical. I think that's when I started to realize uh, hackers can really infect uh, software and find ways to get into uh, the software that basically potentially uh, uh, could cause harm and obviously uh, benefit them, in, you know, financially in their in their evil ways right so i think uh yeah to to many degrees uh when when you start creating programs you're starting to include libraries you're starting to u utilize tools that's when i start to start to feel there might be something that could be uh, uh very uh, suspicious and dangerous that you may not even know right so yeah yeah i mean i i, I kind of thought about this back when there was this complexity that started from we we went through this sort of process and and there was this whole thing about the mainframe is dead and you know mm. on the mainframe it was very controlled and we we had hackers there too and and some of us were mainframe type hackers uh but then they you know basically ibm was telling us mainframes were dead at the same time they were selling us mainframes and that you would have your very own computer on your desk right. and we had users then that were 
uh, being harassed by really lame malware that was on floppy disks and stuff like that. I mean, we—I don't know if you've ever seen it for your VIC twenty, but uh, I think all of us probably wrote one little piece of code that did like uh, there was one that that started up and it said uh, cleaning your hard drive and it made all kinds of like whirring noises and stuff and <laughs> exactly. Yeah, wow. I mean, you know, but that didn't that wasn't widespread and then, you know, we got back to that sort of like client server model which was to me just another mainframe model and now we're at the cloud which is a real mainframe yeah. model. But today, I I think where we are is we see just almost a worldwide mesh of network devices that they're all connected together. Yeah. How do, yeah. how do you think that threat surface has evolved for users? Yeah, I mean, from my experience, this I'm glad you touched on IBM because IBM um, compatibles, the days that when I was building my own XP AT compatibles, um, and then putting eventually putting, you know, the whole purpose of building those computers back then was to, uh, you know, do some word processing. And but most of the time I used it for playing video games, right? So you think about that when that happened, immediately, I wanted to connect to the, uh, not the internet, but basically, you know, dial up sysops, you know, basically where you can download software and stuff like that. So there was exchange sort of underneath already. So that's where initially where the best stuff can come in, which you could download pieces of software that, that, that probably is legit, but you still have potentially hacks in there or, or things that could uh, damage your computer. But the evolution took a really, I would say, a huge hockey stick, you know, the way how quickly things evolve. Because back in the days when you build software, you still have to go go get um, operating system, get the hardware, get it, get your hardware together and then install the operating system, get your compilers, everything all together, then move, right? Now these days, all these things are actually much easier with public cloud infrastructure. With the software being the way it is today, um, you know, hardly ever you have to really get down to writing socket level uh, code to, to, uh, to communicate with your clients, between your client and server uh, type of uh, software uh, kind of behavior. Yeah, you know, there's plenty of libraries that's available to people now. Um, and it's so many things connected together, so many microservices available that you can interact with uh, that to, to solve your, um, you know, to have to actually build your software. Um, in fact, we, we did a study, I think like over 54% of the uh, code base that we examined, it's, um, it's third party software libraries, <laughs> right? Open yep. source or whatever uh, you are, uh, using for SDKs and stuff like that. So I think the, uh, the evolution got into a place where uh, building software is using ready to use type of supply uh, supplies, I would call the libraries and, 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 you know, in various different programming languages, both on the server side, as well as on the client side, because software today, um, I remember the days when I put my first CGI back in, you know, it's CGI not for computer graphics, but more of a computer gateway interface. I don't know if you remember that, dot CGI's. Mm-hmm. Um, it was mostly rendering on the server and server side. Yeah. Then you get the HTML and, the, and you know, really kind of show on your, on your uh, browser. But today's world, uh, a lot of that has changed, right? So, so the server side actually uh, gets the data together, the rendering and the compute to make it really awesome user experience happens on the client side. So, so, you know, if you think about supply chain, it's also shifting because it's no longer just the supply chain of building your software, building your uh, runtime libraries, um, I mean, including your runtime libraries and building your, uh, your software with static libraries. Now it's also potentially inclusion of JavaScript libraries that, that runs on the, 
on the browser on the client side. So it makes uh, security for application much, much harder, right? Because then uh, the bad guys can figure out ways to infiltrate not only just your um, your your build environment um, or your libraries, but also potentially attack your users uh, that you don't have, you know, you won't be in the data path for, right? So it's getting much harder. So uh, obviously uh, it's a problem, but uh, we have to find the best way to, to protect our, our customers, yeah. Yeah, the, the the president of the United States, you know, wrote an executive order a couple of weeks ago that basically is saying that they have to put an ingredient list, as they're calling it, on software that they want to sell. Uh, do you mm-hmm. think that's even doable? I, I was looking at a piece of software yesterday. I was trying to help somebody, um, and I, the um, the number of calls in that piece of software, and it wasn't even that complicated of a thing, that were external calls, was mm-hmm. just like wow. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and I was like, and, and then I don't even know how that ingredient list would work then, because if I call something else and that calls something else and that calls something else, I don't even know how you chain all that stuff together. Do you think that would actually work? I mean, is it possible? I think, you know, it's going to be difficult, but it's definitely anything is uh, possible um, because we get um, the browser, um, you know, uh, companies and, and also the server, you know, infrastructure and application infrastructure public cloud. Uh, all together, we can solve this. Uh, but the biggest challenge is still, if you think about supply chain, there's supply chain that basically, like I mentioned, that can get into your CICD pipeline, get into your builds, get into, you know, disrupting, you know, find a way to get to that. So when you're building software, you're apparently building potentially malware, right? <laughs> that's one That's one side. The other one is, uh, figuring out how everything links. But most of the initial days, I would say how a website or web application is interconnected is mostly due to advertisements. If you remember trackers, mm-hmm. if you remember this, I think I use this, uh, I currently use the tool now. Basically, it's an extension to the browser. It will stop all the trackers, right? Basically, they find a way to get into your, your client cycle to basically see what the user is behavior is and, and report back and all for the purpose of actually commercial purposes. But I think if you think about beyond that, now actually rendering the page, you know, doing, for example, turning a three, uh, like turning some data into a three-dimensional um, vector graphics or anything like that could be a library uh, away from making it happen. So developers are going to, uh, you know, probably lean towards convenience and, and efficiency uh, by using those libraries, right? And, and in that effect, I think there's so much that's happening right now. Really, what we have to do is uh, um, from the JavaScript interpreter on the browser, all the engines that's running the browser uh, need to get better and smarter, right? Mm. And of course, on the other type of supply chain attacks, which is completely uh, manageable, we just have to make sure, um, you know, really monitor what software is being used um, and really check and balance, make sure all this, uh, the integrity for those software libraries are, are, are constantly being, uh, being examined, uh, during nightly builds, doing any type of, uh, uh compilation or, uh, a software development process. Yeah. And, and I mean, and I think the cloud's going to make that even worse, right? I mean, because some, in some way it goes back to what you're saying earlier about the rendering. I, I, we, we moved rendering 
onto servers. I mean, I remember building those projects because I was doing something yeah. for the architecture school and they were like, how do we yeah. render this stuff? And, you know, we built yeah. some servers they could send their renders to. Then you pulled it back down. So yeah. desktops and the GPUs got better. And now yeah. I, I actually think some of that's going to start getting pushed back the other direction because of the cloud. Because mm -hmm. why do I need all that horsepower local if I need to do some kind of render once a month? And if I could, you know, buy that time on, on whatever service. So I think those threats go up there with lambdas and all these things. It, it's really yeah. it's really scary and intimidating to me when I look at code today because of the sheer volume of things that are going on outside the control of me as the programmer. I mean, did you have do you feel that same way? I mean, when you look at code today, do you, do you get that mm -hmm. feeling? Definitely. I actually look at the, the developer behavior as one of the things that I worry about the most because developers are going to be able to utilize public cloud very, very efficiently. Uh, the only problem is, is it secure, right? Are they doing the right thing in the public cloud uh, infrastructure? Are they configuring everything correctly? For convenience, they could open the port to, to so they can access. Thinking from their home is the only way in, but you know, home networks are not always safe too. You, you heard the news from Trend Micro, right? So my mm -hmm. thinking here is that uh, the behavior in public cloud uh, infrastructure using uh, in public cloud to build your software uh, could potentially open up more, uh, you know, vulnerabilities to the bad guys. They can take over, they can they can run crypto mining all the way to potentially, um, you know, doing actual malware or, or, or um, malicious attacks. So I think cloud security posture is one of the things that's available natively in the public cloud uh, infrastructure, as well as tools that's available to, to make sure uh, the, the developers and your engineers are utilizing the public cloud infrastructure uh, in, a, in a secure manner. Yeah, and still figure out a way to stay very, building things very fast. Yep. I mean, I, I think developers are always about getting it to work. I mean, no matter what your intention, <laughs> at some yeah. point you're sitting there going, I've got to fix this. I've got to fix this. I've got to fix Absolutely. this. And, and that's where yeah. you that's where you start making those big mistakes, right? Because you go, oh, I, mm -hmm. I'm going to grab this and put it in there. And, oh, it works. Yeah. Just, that's it. Hit commit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All exactly. right. I, I want to thank uh, Fleming Shi from CTO yeah. Network, uh, or from the CTO Barracuda uh, Networks, uh, for joining us today with some great uh, insights about that. If you want to learn more about Barracuda, please visit securityweekly.com/barracuda. And you, finally, oh, thank you. And finally, Charlie bit my finger is is a meme for the ages. That that says a lot about our modern culture. You know, the the Renaissance had Michelangelo. We have Charlie bit my finger. You know, for from this era. But uh, one of the earliest viral videos. Uh, this it was a fifty five second clip. Uh, if you've never, I'm surely you've seen it. But if you've never seen it, it's a fifty five second clip that shows a small British boy getting bitten by his even smaller British, presumably baby brother. I, I don't know. Maybe I think I think they're boys. Um, but anyway, well, the clip. Uh, so this Charlie bit my finger clip was auctioned off on Sunday as an NFT. Uh, and an anonymous bidder, get this, plopped down seven hundred and sixty thousand nine hundred and ninety nine U.S. dollars for the fifty five second clip. Really? So the the two kids are are now fifteen and seventeen, but I guess they won't need to worry much about college loans since they just got all that money for this fifty five second viral video clip way back when. Uh, if you don't know what an NFT is, you probably should read up on it, but it basically means that we have put a hash with the clip and it means it can be pulled from being posted online unless somebody owns it. So 
I guess it will disappear. I mean, they said it's going to disappear from YouTube. It's going to disappear from the earth as some collector takes it and puts it on their private yacht. I hope they enjoy it over and over and over again on their private island or, or in space on Mars or wherever it is they have this, this NFT. And that is the news in a time of declining plague. Get your shots. Thanks to Fleming Shee from Barracuda. See you Friday on Security Weekly News Wrap-Up Show.